The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Let's pray. Father, we can read this psalm and find ourselves in it from time to time, sometimes often. Dry and faint. The psalmist speaks of our condition sometimes with a soul that is thirsty and flesh that faints in a world that is chaotic and is, is full of need and trouble and living lives that are burdened wearisome and you have given us a great privilege that the second verse is possible so I have looked at you in the sanctuary he we can come into your presence and gaze upon your beauty and your strength and your power and be filled and be satisfied the passage that we'll look at this morning in the gospel of Luke it's going to bring that issue in front of us in different ways. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to us in a way that is encouraging and inviting and moving. So we would consider this privilege that we have and would take you up on the offer. where we exist here in a world and we are called the minister here in a world in, in which we need your fullness filling us up and running out of us onto others all around us and into every situation in which we walk. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you that you do not send us out and require us to do it apart from you. So speak in your word this morning, Lord. Help us to, to understand it. And would you move in us to, to encourage and to perhaps convict and perhaps confront, but mostly, I think, Lord, to encourage this morning and invite. Draw us to you, please. Would you commission your spirit to move in this room and and while we are here in, in what feels like a little different setting to me and perhaps to others, would, would you settle us here and help us to, to focus and to hear your word? So Father, send your spirit to, to remove obstacles, remove barriers, and pave the way to you. Make the word clear. Honor Christ and build your church, please. It is in his name that I pray. Amen.
Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 6 in a transition section of sorts. We're coming up on Luke's treatment of what we most commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, this extended teaching where Jesus is going to teach his disciples what it means to be a follower of Christ. Coming up on that, and we're leaving the section in which Luke has been showing us Jesus personally, again and again, largely in a context in which he has shown us Jesus calling out people who then become followers of him, and also people who don't become followers of him, really don't, but instead oppose him. In particular, the Pharisees, as we saw last week. Jesus asserted in these two sections on the Sabbath, he asserted, and then with another healing on the Sabbath, proved that he had authority to clarify what the Sabbath is about and how we should interact, how we should deal with it, what we should do on it. He showed that he is the one who stands over the fourth commandment, who explains, who can teach and can order and can release us from burden. And then he healed, proving it, which was the last straw. And the Pharisees settled their minds against him. Filled with fury, it says, they began to plot his destruction. But at the same time, large crowds still flocking to him, and some people even quite willing to be very deliberately identified with him. So we're going to see that in our section this morning. Our passage is a a transition, a bridge, in which we see him still calling disciples and still ministering to masses of people, and preparing to teach this great sermon. But he calls out, we have two sections, two kind of things going on here this morning. One, calling out of the 12 disciples, and then this ministering to a a massive crowd. And as we see him do that, we're going to notice some things about what Jesus is doing, and I think probably more importantly, how. Like, what's behind that? How, how, How does he, where does that come from? So I've got kind of two things I'm working on this morning, what and how. And if I put them together, I'm going to make, here's my one sentence, my summary for this morning. You can jot this down. Jesus models for us ministry out of spiritual overflow. Jesus models for us ministry that is out of spiritual overflow, by which I mean out of the spiritual depth and fullness of his heart flows out, that's where the ministry comes from. So the what, this ministry to, to, to the crowds, to people of all different levels of commitment, that's the what and the how is spiritual overflow. Those are the two points I'm going to kind of elaborate on here this morning in this bridge section. Let me read it. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. And then I'll make two observations from this passage. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, 
and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The word of the Lord, Luke chapter 6. The passage begins in those days, and without being very specific, all that we know is that it's about the same time as what we saw with the, the Sabbath issue. Jesus went out and prayed and then came back and chose the twelve, the disciples. He called them out from the rest of his disciples. As we see later in verse 17, there's, there's a large group of people who call themselves the disciples of Jesus, separate from the masses who don't. So from those disciples, he then chose 12 in particular, and he called them apostles. That's a, a word, a, a title that comes from a, a, a word family. All of those related words kind of mean sent one or an ambassador, often coming from a government or from a ruler. Someone who is, who is dispatched with a message or perhaps dispatched to carry out a particular job or fulfill a role. So it's not uniquely, this term apostle, is not uniquely a spiritual or religious word, originally. But you can see how if you put it in a Christian context then, the, the meaning of it becomes that a messenger or an ambassador or one carrying out a job for Christ, one who carries his message. And if we write that with a lowercase a, apostle with a lowercase a, then we'll notice that throughout the New Testament there are a bunch of people called apostles. It's not particularly unique. Churches and even Jesus sends out other people called apostles. So broadly speaking, it's fair to, to use that word to describe people set aside by a church or by the Lord for some particular purpose. But we need to be clear, that's all lowercase a, apostle. Capital A, if you will, apostle, is just this group, these 12. And there had to be 12 12 on purpose, such that we read in, Luke, in, in Acts chapter 1, Luke's second book, that when they went to replace Judas, there were 11 and two qualified replacements who met the criteria. The criteria is someone who has been with Jesus from the very beginning, from the baptism of John. Two guys fit that criteria, but they only took one because there had to be 12. These 12 particularly, deliberately chosen. They are 12 because they are the new tribes of Abraham. They are faithful Israel, like the faith of their father Abraham. So there had to be 12. And they are the foundation of the new covenant community. They are 12 that are never repeated. These 12 are never replaced when they die off. They are 12 at the foundation. So we need to be very clear. If we're talking about capital A, the 12, the apostles, they are a one and done group. There are no more apostles like that today. There are no more 12. There are no more head of the church 12 apostles in existence anymore today. Foundation once and for all. For our purposes this morning, we see him call these 12 and name them. Luke uses some different names than some of the other Gospels use, but everybody who's reading this knew who he was talking about. Some had multiple names. Everybody knew them all. Everybody knew that Judas Iscariot was the one who became the traitor. 
Luke puts that in there to point out something to us. Jesus chose him too on purpose. Jesus knew what he was doing in choosing 12, and Jesus knew what he was doing in choosing Judas. And then, verse 17, moving into the the second section, he takes these newly minted leaders, and with them he wades down into the masses comes down to a level place, which is not a contradiction of Matthew's mount. Some folks have kind of wondered how to deal with that. Well, I just ask you, if you're up here at Tanner Flats Campground, are you in the mountains or are you at a flat place? Yes. Jesus just descends from a mountain down to a, a, a place still in the mountains, but it's a little bit more doable for a large crowd. It's, it's the same thing. And he is dealing with a very large crowd. You see, this crowd comes from everywhere, all across Jerusalem and Judea and even Gentile seacoast, Tyre and Sidon. Tons of people, tons of people come. And they all come to hear Jesus teach and to be healed, which is what happens. It must have been an amazing scene, but one which by this point probably sounds a little familiar to us because we've seen this sort of thing massive crowd come to hear him come to be healed that's what happens casts out demons heals the diseases and then teaches this amazing sermon that follows it's an amazing long day of ministry all done with the 12 right at his side and all carried along by the great power that was within him and as the last verse says was coming out of him. That's the passage. As I said, it's a bit of a bridge, and so we kind of find ourselves sort of standing on a, on a teetering place. He's calling disciples, but we're really moving towards the Sermon on the Mount. So what do we make from, from this section right here? Well, two things I want to draw out. What he's doing and how he's doing it. Here's the first point. The what. Jesus continually ministers to people, pouring out wisdom and compassionate power. Jesus continually ministers to people, pouring out wisdom and compassionate power. And obviously I'm going to talk more about this, but I, need to, I feel like I need to at the very beginning kind of plead with you to stay engaged because it sounds familiar, and I'm going to come back around to the sounds familiar part. I think there's actually something that might catch us in the sounds familiar part, but remain engaged here. He, he continually ministers to people, pouring out wisdom and compassionate power. Where this, where this falls in, in the flow of the story kind of tells us something a little bit. Jesus certainly knew what was going on in that synagogue on the Sabbath. He knew they were lying in wait for him, and he certainly realized their response that they are now actively planning, how can we destroy him? And he doesn't retreat. He doesn't lay low for a little while and let let the anger cool off. Right in the midst of that, he continues to minister. He just carries on like normal, calling more disciples and ministering to massive crowds that they couldn't have missed. They know right where he is and right what he's doing. He just keeps at it. doesn't turn to protect himself. And this ongoing, continual ministry, what is it like? What is it marked by? 
Well, it's marked by great wisdom and insight and understanding. We see it implied in the the teaching that's about to come up, the teaching that will follow here. We see it in the picking of the twelve. He knows what he's doing in picking twelve and founding this new community. He knows what he's doing in picking Judas. We can see some of the reasons that he might have picked some of these folks. We, We see some of what came from them later. We see Peter and John and Thomas. You know, he, he deliberately chose a brash leader. He deliberately chose a tender man of love. He deliberately chose a man who said, I need to see it to believe it. And he deliberately chose a man who would take him to the cross. That's interesting. Jesus looked at him and said, I know who you are and I know what this does to me. Come be close. He has a ministry that is marked by, by incredible bold wisdom, but even in that, in that wisdom and in that choosing of, of the cross there, we see him moving on to, to the compassion that is, that is more dominant in this passage, compassionate power. There is, a, there is one phrase about how the crowds came to hear him but several lines there, 18 and 19, about how their great need was healing. Crowds came from everywhere. Followers and non-followers. A large group of disciples and a large group of non-disciples, even Gentiles. And they didn't come all that distance not to get healed. And it says that they believed, that they, they all sought to touch him. This is verse 19. They're, they're clamoring, they're pressing in. They've got to touch him because they think that the power comes out of him by, via physical contact. So I need to touch him. A massive, the words here are great multitude, great crowd, large numbers of people all cramming in around him to touch, to touch, to touch, to touch. Can you picture that kind of a, if you're in the middle of that, ugh, Do you know? Thousands, it must have been thousands of people all pressing in, pressing in with a need that they are determined to have fulfilled by touching him. This is just a summary section, so it's not narrated very tightly, but some who were troubled with unclean spirits, we've seen before what that's like when unclean spirits are cast out. They talk back. This is spiritual warfare in the midst of of a clamoring crowd and it is people hurting in all kinds of different ways. And he stands there in the midst of the clamoring crowd. How long? Until they all were healed. Verse 19, healed them all. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Twelve leaders of the church 
other disciples who in some way or another are followers of him, but certainly he knows most of them won't be. And large numbers of people that aren't even pretending. But have all come to him with a need, and he heals them all. He continually ministers to people, pouring out wisdom and particularly compassionate power, engaging with people, multitudes crowding in because he loves people. Just loves people. Because he longs for human image bearers to be set free from harassment and the bondage of unclean spirits. Because he sees people afflicted and hurt and diseased in some way or another and wants that gone from image bearers. This is Jesus commended to you, held out in front of you, shown to you. shown in a way that should wow you if you think about the thousands of people in a clamoring environment and he patiently waits and heals, lets himself be handled and heals and heals and heals. It is shown, he's shown to you in a way that should wow you and should woo you, should invite you to him. But it, maybe it doesn't because Man, we've seen this before, haven't we? I mean, Steve, you're kind of going on about this thing that, I mean, it sounds kind of like the way you went on about it on page before, which sounds kind of like the way you went on, it, uh, on about the page before that, because this is always happening. I mean, Jesus is always doing this. Yeah. Ironically, that's the piece that should hook you. Jesus, Jesus is always doing this. He always is facing large crowds, moving through village after village, we saw in chapter 4, all through Galilee. And on a certain day, a large crowd comes and hears him teach and he heals them. Next day, there's a crowd there. They hear him teach and he heals them. Day after that, there's a, another big crowd there and he, they hear him teach and he heals them. Next day, you know, fourth verse, same as the first. Again and again and again, day after day after day. My goodness, this is boring. It's the same thing over and over again. My goodness, this is Amazing. Be amazed at this. See it on page after page. This is who he is. This is what his heart is like. This is what's held out in front of you. You should see this and be amazed and, and marvel at this. Do you yourself today, do you find yourself in need of such a Jesus, full of wisdom and full of compassionate power? There is such a one still available, standing in the midst of this chaotic world that you walk in, standing here available to you. Come. 
Come to, you, come to him in all of your weariness and heavy ladenness, with all of your spiritual oppression, with all of your sin. Come and you find, when you come, you find a Jesus who is full of wisdom and full of compassionate power and is very, 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 very willing to all who come to him to give to them exactly, wisely, perfectly what you need to be healed. Whatever that is, Now carefully, we do not have here a promise to heal everyone of everything. He didn't heal everybody on the earth. And the people that he healed, they all still died. We don't have a promise for universal, total, complete healing yet. We do have a great, great great testimony to the character and the willingness of Jesus to wisely, powerfully, compassionately, in love give you what you perfectly need when you come to him and say, here I am, please. He will receive the one who comes to him and says, here I am, please. And he will wisely, perfectly deal with you and give you right rest. We see here a profound testimony to the character of Jesus and his willingness. And we also, if we have eyes to see it, we see here a marker pointing forward because while there is not perfect, complete rest yet, we see pointing forward how can there be any healing? How can there be any dealing with demonic powers? How can there be any kind of a a removing off of people of affliction Because Jesus himself says, I'll take it off of you and I'll put it on my own back and I'll bear it to the cross and I'll take it to the grave and I'll bury it there. I will do that. He can deal with a demonic because he can deal with the demonic one day. He can heal disease because he deals with that one day. You see here a pointer forward towards the time when there is perfect healing. So you should see here someone who is commended to you as what you need and come to him and find it. And we also should notice something else here. This is, in many ways, just like what's happened before with one big difference. Verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place and did all this. This all happens with the church at his side. The twelve. There, the church in seed form in them. The first thing he does with these newly minted leaders, before he's going to teach them, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to teach them what it means to look to God for their reward and give up their lives in love towards enemies. You can see some of that in that sermon. If you just, even just glance over, you see some of the headings. Before he teaches them that, he brings them with him and shows them like this. Like this. The first step of apprenticeship 
He leads them into the world of need and then wisely, compassionately shows them they need the power of God to address all of this. Don't hide, don't seek to save yourself, but instead give yourself away in the power of God to the world. He models that for them, for us. Which should make us ask, how? how? Where does that come from? So you model that, but that's a tall order because I'm a little freaked out standing in the midst of all this crowd, and they're not after me. You're telling me that this is what our calling is to be now? Uh, how, where? How? That's the second point. Second observation then. How does Jesus continually minister to people with wisdom and compassion and power? Where does he get all the wisdom and the power and the compassion? Well, here's the point. Ministry for Jesus, and therefore certainly for us, flows out of communion with God. Ministry for Jesus, and therefore certainly for us, flows out of communion with God. Verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's the setup for the whole situation that follows here. He did that before he picked the twelve and then with them waded down into the masses. He went out and spent the night in prayer with God as was his habit. If we just read that only, we might think, well, that was a one-time event that he did just to set up the picking of the twelve, but it's not. It's his habit. We've seen this actually before, although we've largely skipped over it until this time. From the very beginning of the account of Jesus' ministry, if you look at chapter 4, you'll notice, after we're told about all that happened in Capernaum, chapter 4, verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. But the people searched for him and found him and begged him to stay with them. What was he doing out there? What did he intend to do when he went out to the desolate place? What was he after? Well, it doesn't say, but we can guess, particularly when we notice chapter 5, verse 16. After he healed the leper, news traveled, verse 15 says, great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities, the usual. Verse 16, but he would withdraw, and hear the tense there, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Also the usual. That is, regularly, on an ongoing basis, he goes out to the desolate places to pray. Because he knows that's the only place that he can be alone. This is his practice. Crowds are always coming always making demands, always putting pressure on him and requiring of him. And because the crowds are always coming, he's always going. Not just to get some alone time or some time with the TV, but he's going to actually be refreshed 
He's going to be before the Father before he's before the people. That's his usual, that's, that's the rhythm of his life. So we see that what's in our passage is not unique. It's, it's actually just normal for him. Ministry for Jesus is not derived from his own natural resources. It's important for us to get because it might be easy for us to see Jesus doing all this stuff and thinking, well, sure, he's God. No. He, he is indeed God. He, he is indeed fully God. But as we have seen, he also is fully man. And we notice throughout the, all the passages describing his birth and his young childhood, as he grows up, he is a real, live human being, as well as fully God. In two natures in one. It, hard to understand, granted. But clearly, he is a man. And he needs what men need. He does not minister from his own innate divine power. He ministers out of overflow of this communing with God, going away to actually pray. Not just tell us to pray. He goes and prays all by himself. He is ministering out of the overflow of the relationship that he's building with God the Father, comes out of him, because he needs that, not just because we need him modeling that for us, though certainly it does model for us. If Jesus did it, if Jesus didn't dare face the world all around and minister without regularly, privately communing with God, if Jesus didn't dare do that, we better not do that. We can't either. And we are all engaged in ministry. It is our assignment, and it is, in fact, our reality anyway. I say it's our assignment because we are encapsulated here in the 12, and we are like Peter and his, the other two guys with him, uh, James and John. We are like them, called to be catchers of men, and we are like Levi, called to do what we can with our lives to connect Jesus to, to people. We are like them, called into it. That is our assignment. We are on mission with Jesus in the world. That's what we're called to be. But if you think about that, even when you are not deliberately, intentionally engaged in ministry, you are still engaged in ministry. It's your reality. Because you live in the world. You live all of life on a battlefield. All of it. Not just when you intentionally head out to do some particular ministry thing. Every minute of every day, you live on a battlefield. It's even more dangerous when you don't realize you're living on a battlefield. You are engaged with unclean spirits all day long. Most of the time, wisely, they don't let you realize that. You are surrounded by people in need all day long. You are 
bombarded by perspectives from, from a fallen world, you have a heart that is deceitful, will lead you astray. And so do your kids and your parents and your classmates and your workmates and your neighbors. Everybody you know. All in the same boat. And every moment of every day, we are, are, are called, just we ourselves are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that he has given us. Ephesians calls us to that. We, we also seek to, of course, raise our children and, and influence our classmates and, and be around our friends. And, and if you're married, to interact with a spouse. Whatever different relationships we all have, we, we want to influence all of them towards good even if we don't think of it particularly as Christ, we think of it influencing them towards good. And there is a countercurrent. You're engaged in this all day long with everybody you know, including when you're just sitting all by yourself. Continually, you are in ministry. Equipped particularly by special, you might say capital M ministers, is Ephesians 4, I'm thinking through Ephesians 4 here. Capital M ministers may have a unique calling, but all of us have the calling to ministry by assignment and, and just by our reality. And we don't have in us what's needed. We don't. Like Jesus, we must go to God and spend time before Him prayerfully. And understand prayer here in the full orb sense. I'm not only, I am talking about, but I'm not only talking about petitioning. Asking for things. That too, certainly. But primarily, prayer is about communion. Primarily what we're talking about here is, is sitting before and relating to. Talk a little bit about perhaps a way to do that towards the end. But I'm talking about a spiritual reality here. I'm not, I'm not talking about just memorizing Scripture verses or, or only moving through a, a list of prayer requests. I'm talking about communion. Relationship with God. We must, we must face-to-face -face commune with Him. It is a necessity and it is a privilege and it is a possibility for us, wonderfully so, because of what Jesus did, even in this passage we see, because of what Jesus did in choosing Judas. That relates. It comes all the way back around. He picks Judas, and that leads to, deliberately leads to a chain of events in which Christ opens up access to the throne room of God, and we can go in. It is a privilege that has been provided for us, a gift given. He chose Judas, and he chose the cross, and he chose then to be cut off and, and cast away. This one who knew 
perfect intimacy with the Father, even while he walked here on the earth. He knew intimacy, connection with communion with the Father. He chose to be cut off, such that when he hangs one day on the cross and says, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's real. The Father has indeed forsaken him, has turned away. And he can ask him and say, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to him is, so that them ones over there, so that I will not forsake them. I forsake you so that I can open up and commune with them forever. I cast you aside that I can welcome them in. I will choose that. I will embrace that, says the Lord. He has done something marvelous for you, Christian to, at great cost to himself, to bear upon himself all of, the, all of the accursedness and all of the forsakenness and all of the condemnation of the Father, such that you can read Psalm 63, and when your flesh faints and your soul is thirsty, you can say, verse 2, so I went into the sanctuary and I beheld his power and his glory. The door, I did yanked on it and it could, I couldn't get in. No, it, it opened to me and there he was open to you by a compassionate and powerful and wise Jesus, a good Savior for you who has given you a great privilege so that you can say as you walk through a world that is full of confusion and chaos and clamoring and and, and exhausting, demanding, berating pressure, you can say, I have a shelter, I have a refuge, I have a tower strongly built for me by this Son, And he invites me in. Come, come, come. What a privilege. What a privilege. And he bought that for you and built that for you to invite you to come in. Come, 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 come. You need it. And you can. Scripture-informed, meditating, prayerful communion with God given to you. Time every day given to you, and to refer to the past two weeks, fasting given to you to make more time, Sabbath given to you every week to provide even more time. God is out to give you access to His presence. That prepares us then to be ministers in the world and not victims of it. But to walk through a world that is full of trouble, sorrowing but always rejoicing because right beside us walking with us is one that we know personally. Freshly and intimately every day. It prepares us for ministry. Sometimes it prepares us, and this is a good and glorious thing, as we ask for specific things and God specifically answers. Prayer requests are good things because we're talking about bending steel. Only one strong enough to do that. And so we ask him, Lord, would you change hearts? Lord, would you turn next? Would you incline people in different directions? Would you change this circumstance and that person's heart and this reality? Hardness is real and blindness is real and God is real and God answers. And if we don't talk to him and ask him to pave the way, we don't have what's needed. 
So sometimes communion with him, praying, requesting, sometimes that prepares us for ministry by specifically asking for things and specifically having them specifically answered. But more than that, bigger than that, larger than that, the benefit and the preparation that comes to us is that we are changed. It's communion with God leaves us transformed and filled and therefore more effective carriers of Christ. Because what people need from us, what we need, what the people around us need from us, is not, and I say this very carefully here, but if you think about it, you know this is true, it's true in your own life. What, what people need is not, I'll put the word just in there, but I want to say it more provocatively, not just the truth. We need the truth, for sure. Yes. But not just the truth. We need the truth carried into us. in some miraculous, spiritual, supernatural way, we need the steel doors pried open and the truth carried in and planted and watered that a living thing would grow inside of us. People need to meet Jesus People need to meet Jesus in, in all of the power that runs out of him. When we hope to be in that situation with power coming out of us, it's not our power, it's his power. It's him coming out of us. And that only happens as we are transformed, as we are changed people, such that we are own, so that we are filled, such that like a fountain, there's something in us that is as if living water just flows out of us onto other people. The water doesn't come from us, but the water comes out of us. It's God in us flowing out, overflowing onto others. The key throughout Luke, Jesus ministering in the power of the Spirit, in Acts, also written by Luke, the apostles, full of the Holy Spirit, say and do. The key, full of the Holy Spirit. The most important, the most foundational way that communion with God equips us to be ministers in the world, that communion with God changes us and we end up filled with the Holy Spirit that is directed and empowered filled up with him, submitted to him, given over to him, owned by him, minds fixed on him, consumed with him. Spiritual men, spiritual women, not just knowledgeable men or knowledgeable women or skillful men or skillful women or cool people who play good music and have hip language or make wonderful plans or are very accommodating in church service structures. 
we want to actually help people, we need to bring Jesus to them. And we bring Jesus to them as we are filled with Jesus ourselves. Filled with the Holy Spirit. We must commune with God. So, like how? That's perhaps a bit nebulous. So let me suggest this. Because that kind of language can be nebulous or a little vague, prayerful communion with God, like what do you mean? Well, Jesus taught us to pray to help us with that. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this, not pray this. Those aren't the words we are to recite. We are to pray like this. These are the themes. This is what directs us in our communion with God. So perhaps you sit down with the Lord's Prayer as as a thematic guideline. And you begin to talk to the Lord, my Father in heaven, Lord, I don't understand Father. Would you help me to understand Father? Would you help me to experience, to actually experience, not just understand, but once I understand it, to actually experience being fathered by you, one of great wisdom and compassion and power, to to know you as my Father, who looks at me as a dearly beloved child and who is in heaven reigning. My Father in heaven. Lord, help me to understand that. I'm praying through the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. I'm meditating on it. And I'm talking to Him. I'm communing with Him. And what I believe, what I, what I hope for, what God promises is that He will meet me Because the door has been opened and the barrier has been removed and he has invited me to come in and he says, I will give you what you need, mercy and grace in your time of need. He will meet me. My Father in heaven, I am loved and I am secure. He is my Father and he reigns. Hallowed be his name. Lord, will you please cause your name to be worshipped in my life and elsewhere too. And maybe then I begin to think through particular people, particular situations. And maybe I also contemplate, Lord, where do I fall short in worshipping? And in in saying that, I'm not looking to be condemned. We're we're communing as, as parent and child in love. I'm not looking to be condemned. I'm looking for gaps. Lord, where do, I, where do I fall short of what you mean for me to experience and live? Where do I worship the creation and not the creator? Show me. Lead me in repentance and expand my view of you that your name would be hallowed in my life and in my children too and in my friends and in my classmates and in my workmates. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, etc., etc., etc. You could easily pass the whole night in prayer before the Lord like that. You could spend a whole Sabbath doing that, 30 minutes over lunch, fasting easily. And you would come out of that the other side filled with Christ, a useful and effective minister in the world. 
when people meet you, they would meet him. I once heard this, this, I can't remember any of the details of this story. I think it was a missionary somewhere in Asia. I could be that exact. And this man shared this story uh, very vulnerably. He was talking with some locals and just asking them kind of in an open moment what they thought of him and of his religion, Christianity. And why they still, after all the time he'd spent with them, why they still followed the local guy, the local religion. And this guy said, well, when I interact with you, I don't get the feeling that I'm in touch with another world. And that missionary, I think, I think he was a missionary, said, that pierced me. Because this guy, this other guy, isn't in touch. He might be in touch with the spiritual realm, but he's not in touch with another world. And I actually am, but I don't come off like that. What does that say about me? Not that I should be more, more somber. Not that I should act like a holy man. But if Christ is alive in me, in some way, with some consistency, people should meet him. This was this man's conclusion. And I, I, don't, I don't mean to be exact. This story, for me, this story does not have to have all of the ends tied down and be perfectly, completely, 100% of the time true. It just helps me to think of this as a check. Do people meet me? Do people meet you? And sometimes, in some way, get a sense, I'm in touch with another world here. A world that is ruled by a king of glory who is immensely wise, powerfully compassionate, who is a father to his people and leaves them secure and rejoicing even as they engage with a clamoring, demanding, hard world. This one is at a portal to somewhere else. That's interesting. Do people experience that? Even if they can't define it and can't say it, do they ever experience that with me, with you? I hope that they do. Again, I don't mean to say that's a 100% airtight. It's just a check for me. I want to, and I pray that you want to, commune with God such that He fills me, He fills you, so that people meet Him in us. Ministry is an overflow of our relationship with God, of, our, of us ourselves and our relationship with God. So brothers and sisters, go to him and find fullness in him. Let me pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. Would you use us as your agents here on earth? Build your church in us and build your church through us. And honor the name of Jesus, I ask. Thank you, Lord. Amen.